Hey, what's up? This is the Back Yourself Podcast, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking investing. To kick things off, I've got a couple of crazy facts for you guys to kind of take in and think about. The first fact, did you know that 15%, that's one five, of all investors in the world only started investing in the year 2020? The second fact, according to one online source, in the first quarter of 2020, foreign online brokers such as Robinhood, E-Trade, and others saw a whopping figure of 170% of new accounts, better known as investor portfolios, created. With us today is Tom from Investing with Tom's YouTube channel and we are going to chat about what investing is and where to start as a beginner by discussing the basics that you might consider when investing. But first, roll our intro. Hey Tom, how's it going my man? Yeah, good mate. Thanks for having me on the show. No, nah, no worries. What do you think about those uh, figures I mentioned in the, the opening, my man? Yeah, they're pretty crazy numbers, but in a lot of ways, they don't surprise me. Like I, I've seen a lot of uh, new people get interested in investing and I guess like more and more people and my friends and family now know that I have a YouTube channel that I talk about investing on and I'm getting more and more questions like when I go to family dinners and Christmas and all that as well. So it doesn't, doesn't entirely yeah. surprise me, but yeah, massive numbers. Like so many people are getting interested in this stuff lately. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty shocking uh, in a way, but I guess a good way as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's also important that um, I guess we, we note that this is more of a, a financial, I guess, education, not an advice um, as most uh, investing podcasts would say at the beginning, but Obviously, I'm not in a uh, podcast, you know, that talks about investing all too much. So this is, in fact, the first time we get to um, chat about this. Um, something that I'm, a, I'm into is, um, a little bit, um, but obviously uh, I came across your YouTube channel um, a while back, maybe, I think maybe a, a year or two ago now. And um, yeah, ever since then, been following you along and um, I guess it's a privilege to have you on the show, my man. Yeah, I appreciate you following the channel. It's been a, it's been a cool journey with YouTube. It's like it's grown far more than I ever thought. Like uh, I'm just a random dude kind of who films in the corner of his bedroom, but the people seem to watch it. So that's, it's pretty cool. Like I get, um, get messages all the time from people that are, you know, learned a few things and it's sort of even one of the cool things I found with getting started investing is it also motivates people to actually save more money or do an extra hour, mm-hmm. do an extra shift, all that kind of stuff. So it's cool to pe- see people getting into gear. Yeah, I mean, um, give us a bit of a background on who you are, my man, and um, I guess uh, what you do for a living, um, if, if that's okay with you. Yeah, for sure. So my name's Tom Bodica. I'm uh, 26 years old, based in Hamilton, uh, New Zealand. I assume most of your listeners are from New Zealand, but I'll say that anyway. <laughs> I um, Yeah, so 26 years old, I'm about four years out of university. So I studied uh, agricultural science, of all things, at, at university, and I'm now working in the agricultural industry. Um, and I guess with me getting into investing, I was sort of a, you know, a few months into my, into my first job, I had a few thousand dollars saved up and kind of didn't know what to do with it. Like I, I wasn't in a position to invest in property, just, you know, I fresh out of uni, had got a couple grand. I'm not going to go buy like a half million dollar house or anything. Right. So, uh, that sort of naturally sort of led me towards investing in shares where you can invest with smaller amounts of money. So, um, for the last probably three, four years that that's been a, a real passion of mine. And since late sort of 2018, I've been putting that out on YouTube as well. So um, start up the YouTube channel where um, I get to talk about all things uh, value investing and, and sort of investing in personal finance in general. So um, why the agricultural uh, degree? 
Yeah, so I, I grew up on a farm. My parents are dairy farmers, um, moved around a little bit, but they were based up in Northland for a while and are now based back in uh, just north of Hamilton here, milking on a dairy farm as well. Um, so that was always an interest of mine, just growing up on the farm. And then when I was actually at school, I did a lot of science um, classes like I did. I was the the guy doing like um, English, maths, and then the three sciences, you know, at high school. So um, <laughs> it was sort of just like merging the two. Like I, I was interested in science, interested in farming, and it was just uh, sort of a natural progression from there. I suppose I was able to put the biology and chemistry and physics and maths and all that sort of into like what I really enjoyed, you know, running um, running farms in New Zealand. And um, you obviously mentioned that you're also based down in Hamilton. Um uh, I know we were talking about it off air and stuff that you were based up here in Auckland for a little while. You went to, I guess, uh, Dilworth um, mm-hmm. yeah, for, for anybody that, that is listening. And um, I mean, what what was the reason for you moving down to Hamilton? Was it was it for work or a better living and, and, and whatnot? Uh, yeah, it was basically just following my parents. I mean, they moved back to the farm in Hamilton when I was in my last year of high school at Dilworth. Um, and yeah, went and studied down in Christchurch and then came back to Hamilton, just, um, you know, a job happened to pop up here, which I, I felt was a good fit for me. So that's why I'm back in, back in Hamilton now. But yeah, went to school at, at Dilworth um, in Auckland, which has unfortunately had a bit of bad press recently, but that I still say to anyone that ever asked me, that's like the best thing that ever happened to me was, was going to Dilworth. It was a phenomenal education and met some uh, great people there as well. Awesome. Um, and I know you already mentioned your um, YouTube channel as well. So did I at the beginning, I guess, at the in, uh, in the intro and whatnot. Um, why did you want to start a YouTube channel? And, and uh, I guess, what is the, the rewards of, of you um, starting that YouTube channel? Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, um, I, I sort of first started the YouTube channel for a couple of reasons. It's like when you talk about investing in New Zealand, pretty much everyone just kind of thinks about real estate investing as if that's sort of all there is that that's kind of what a lot of people think and here I was uh you know this like 20 early 20s guy in Hamilton who's like really nerding out over shares and I sort of had no one to talk to about it so uh next next natural step from there was to you know why don't we talk to the people of the internet and and I sort of started up the YouTube channel from there so that's kind of where it got started and it's sort of evolved into a few different things. Like it's still a way for me to, you know, I guess express my thoughts and opinions on, on how to go about investing. Um, I often say that when you try to explain something to a camera, you find out pretty quickly whether you actually understand it yourself or not. So it's been sort of a good learning exercise for me. Um, and it's also turned into a side hustle to be honest as well. Like it's, um, you know, grown to the point where it's generating some ad revenue from the videos. And, um, that's a really nice sort of side income for me to have on top of my job. So it's evolved into a few different things, but sort of the genesis of it was, uh, me having no one to talk to (laughs) as lame as that sounds. (laughs) So that's kind of what, what kicked it off. What, what, what what was the feeling like when you first started the YouTube channel, you know, with, with, you know. Mm -hmm. I guess people's opinions and and whatnot of, of why is Tom starting this? Yeah. Well, I think uh, when I first started, like I I know a lot of people when they start YouTube channels and stuff um, will like post on Facebook, you know, I've started this new YouTube channel, go follow along, blah, blah, blah. I didn't do any of that. I just put a video out there on YouTube, told no one and kind of just let it like naturally do its own thing. So when it first started, it was really slow. Like it, uh, I'm at 20, something thousand subscribers now a few years in but it took me six months to get to 100 and 
the first sort of couple of times that like people that I knew kind of yeah. came across the video or something, it was kind of awkward. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've just randomly got to, got to put this video online, but um, I don't know. It's turned into something that I, that I really enjoy. And I think, um, you know, I still cringe a bit when I go back and watch some of my earlier videos of like how terrible I am at talking to a camera, but it's been a good little self-development thing there as well so um yeah it was a slow start it, it was a bit it's always a bit awkward kind of getting those things up and running but really enjoying it now did you did you ever think like you know at, at some point you know even in that six months you know if you're starting that youtube channel you know we've only out you said 100 subscribers or whatnot and did you ever think that oh why am i doing this and and did you ever think you'd you know you you wouldn't carry on with it yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm I'm someone that actually sets goals quite frequently. Like um, I know as like cliche as it sounds, basically every time a new year rolls around, I kind of sit down and write down some new year's goals. And I'd seen some other people do quite well on YouTube. And I sort of thought, you know, I'll just give myself 12 months. I'll, I'll fully commit to this for 12 months. And just once we get to the end of that 12 months, we'll sit down and assess how it goes. So let's just put out content consistently, not care how many views or subscribers we get or anything like that. We'll just kind of go through and see what happens. And I'm really glad that I sort of committed to that because by the time I got to the end, even though the, to the end of those 12 months, even though the growth was kind of slow, I could see that it was starting to get more exponential, I suppose. Like I went from the hundred subscribers, six months into a thousand subscribers, another six months in and so on. So I was starting to see that it was starting to, gain traction so it's definitely a grind in those early days but uh, mentally for myself I just had to like commit to doing it for some reasonable length of time just to kind of see how it, see how it went and in terms of, in terms of figures and stuff are you able to give us some some idea of, of uh, the I guess the the revenue or the money that you make off of YouTube yeah sure so um, I've actually got a couple of YouTube videos that kind of go through that that full breakdown but I, I'm probably due for an update on it but Essentially to, I guess I'll go back to like how you make money off YouTube in the first place. So the simplest way that you can do it is just off ads that run in front of your videos. So um, in order to be eligible to run those ads, you need, um, need to basically hit two criteria. The first one is a thousand subscribers. And the second one is 4,000 hours of watch time, which depending on how long people watch your videos for will come out to a different amount of views for different people. But for me, it was roughly 50,000 views to kind of hit those thresholds. And then from that point, it basically comes down to two things. It's kind of how many views do you get? Because if you get more views, you know, more ads have been able to get put in front of more people. Um, and then the other thing it comes down to is actually what type of videos you make. So um, advertisers will tend to pay higher ad rates to advertise to different people. So um, for me in the personal finance and investing space, the ad rates are actually quite good. So, um, you know, advertisers want to target people that watch my videos because they think that that's a, you know, a good place to put the ads, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, I guess in terms of figures, um, when I first got monetized, I think I made like, uh, I think I made like a hundred dollars in the first month, which to me was like, it might have well been like $2 million. I was like so excited. <laughs> after Top putting of the in like, world, eh, bro? Yeah, after putting like 12 or 14 months of consistent effort in to get to that 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 watch hours, 4,000 hours of watch time, it was like, yeah, might have well been, might as well have been millions. That's how kind of pumped I was. 
Um, and now it's grown to the point where it's bringing in probably about $1,500 a month, oh. roughly. Um, it fluctuates quite a bit sort of month to month. Um, but yeah, about 1500 bucks, And that's sort of the YouTube ad revenue side of it. There's other ways that people make money off YouTube as well. I mean, there's things like sponsors and I'm lucky to have a couple of sponsors I work with. I probably am not allowed to tell you the exact numbers there, but that certainly helps. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's turned into a reasonably significant sort of side hustle for me, which is cool. And, and it's great to have, like, it's so scalable as well. I mean, I'm not, I'm putting in a bit more effort than I was when I first started it, but I'm still putting out a similar number of videos each month. And as the channel sort of just naturally grown, that relatively similar amount of effort kind of each month is getting more and more rewarded, which is kind of one of the cool things of, I guess, starting any type of business, but a YouTube channel is a pretty good example of that. So is it fair to say that, um, you know, so that that's probably obviously your second source of income in, in regards to, you know, um, I guess on the side of, of your main job. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I still work a full-time job, 40 hours a week kind of thing. Um, and what is it that you do obviously for, for um, work? Yeah, sure. So I guess coming out of that, um, coming out of that ag science degree, I sort of went straight into the ag industry. So I work for ag software business now. Um, been in sort of a couple of different roles with that company. When I first started, I was like answering the phones as kind of like a help desk type person. And I've transitioned more to, um, I guess, working a little bit closer with some of the customers that use our products. So we have a software system, which basically helps you run um, analysis on different options that you might pursue with a farm so if you want to not sure how familiar with farming you or your audience are but if you're a, if you're a dairy farmer for example and you want to use like a different crop or you want to milk more cows or less cows or um, you know any sort of change like that we basically help you run the numbers behind what would work practically based off how much grass the farm grows and then what the profitability of those different sort of options are, are likely to look like as well so yeah that's um kind of unrelated to investing but that's that's what i do for a day job oh and, and i guess going back to you know youtube um you've also started a you know a podcast yourself mm -hmm. um which you've also called investing with tom yep uh podcast um and so how's that going for you yeah pretty good it's been a been an interesting uh i think i'm 10 episodes in so far so it's still you know, relatively early days, but we we're talking beforehand. I, I've found it kind of strange how um, I've gone from like putting out a YouTube video with has a comment section and you have a like button and a dislike mm. button, which means you can get feedback fairly quickly on whether people like what you're talking about or not. Podcast land's kind of different. Like you don't, there's no comment section, you know, people can leave reviews and that kind of stuff, but it's, in a lot of ways, it's a bit <laughs> of like, you're sort of sending content out yeah. into the abyss and just sort of seeing how it goes. Um, but yeah, it's been good. Like I really enjoy the longer form stuff and been trying to like being able to chat one-on-one -on -one, sort of like we are now. I've, I've really enjoyed that as opposed to me just talking to a camera yeah. for 10 or 15 minutes like I do on YouTube. So um, yeah, it's a nice change. I mean, from like a monetization perspective, it's not bringing in anything financially at the moment. It's just kind of a cool sort of side project that, that I enjoy. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually you would hope that obviously, um, I mean, you're not, you, you did say you're not getting paid through it at, at, at this stage, right? Correct. And so eventually, hopefully though, you, you would hope to, to make that money. Um, you know, as you say, monetization off of uh, the podcast as well. Yeah. I mean, it'd be sort of a, a nice to have at some point, to be honest, the, 
main sort of return I guess I'm getting out of that is is really just learning from people and and we were speaking a bit about this before we started recording as well like if you know I can pick up one or two things from each guest that I have on that builds up quite a bit over a long period of time so uh, yeah I mean I'd love obviously love to make money off that stuff at some point but um, that's not sort of the primary driver for that particular project I suppose. Yeah, cool. Um, and you know, obviously, let's go back to the introduction. You know, I did mention that you know, fifty percent of all investors in the world um only started investing in the year twenty twenty. Um, I guess from your perspective, man, what what do you think? There are so many new people wanting to invest, and in, and in, you know, I guess what seemed to be during a uh, somewhat of a, a financial crisis in a way, you know, with uh, the pandemic last year. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, if you'd told me, um if you told me that there was going to be a pandemic and you asked me what would that do to uh, real estate prices and prices and share market prices, I would have said, well, they'll, they'll just tank, but we've kind of seen the exact opposite of that. Everything's at like all time highs right now. So it's a very strange time. And I think there's probably a few reasons that a lot of people have got interested in investing. I think um, certainly a lot of people have gone through hardships over the last year or so with perhaps losing a job or, um, you know, something along those lines, and they've just basically been forced to pay more attention to their finances. So that's that's one side of it. And even for the people that haven't lost a job, I think they're a lot more wary of the fact that they maybe could, you know, relatively easily lose a job or do something like that. So I think that's part of it. Um, to be honest, I think a, a pretty large percentage of the new people that are coming in recently are also um, you know, getting government checks, particularly in the US, for example, and they're almost just like gambling with it because there's no sports on and they're looking for the next <laughs> next thing they can put money towards. So I think I think there probably is a bit of that going on. But um, from my perspective, like the more people that care about personal finance and taking little steps, you know, every day or every week to try and get ahead, um, that that's a good thing in my books. Um, so you know, we, we've we've mentioned the word investing quite a bit. What, quite simply, man, in, in your in your terminology or in your terms, what is your definition um, of investing? Yeah, I guess um, there's probably a dictionary different definition, which is quite different from what I'm about to say. But um, investing to me is basically sacrificing something today in order to get a larger payback in future. So, you know, if I get paid for my job today. Um, rather than going out and buying a new TV or upgrading my phone or something, I'm foregoing that, putting that into some sort of vehicle that's going to grow my money over time in order to be able to buy multiple cars or phones down the, tra- down the track, right? Like I'm, I'm basically foregoing something today in order to try and have more, um, you know, later in life, essentially. That That's kind of how I view investing. Yeah, cool. Um, and, and at the same time, like what? when was the moment you realized um, that investing was something that that you would be keen on doing or you know get into um yeah I, it probably comes back to when i was like i think i mentioned earlier when i was getting into my first job and had a little bit of money saved up and was sort of like what do i do with this um that was part of it like i, I sort of just naturally came across investments because i for whatever reason i don't, I don't know if my brain's just wired to think about something it's just wired to maybe think that making 1% a year in a bank account is not very good and I should try find something else. Yeah. Um, but part of it also was just doing like back of the envelope calculations. Like I was fresh out of uni, um, you know, I was earning a very modest salary at that time. And I was saying, you know, if I work for 40 years and I can save X percentage of my income, I'm, I might 
still not have enough to retire on. Like I'm just doing some basic maths and something's not adding up here. And, and I guess the ingredient that I sort of, I sort of figured out that you have to add in the middle of that is you can't just save all your money and stick it in a bank account for 40 years. You have to actually grow that money somehow. So that got me interested in investing and it's, um, yeah, been something um, super nerdy and, and kind of into, into that world now. But um, yeah, those those would be the big influences, like having money in a bank account and seeing it not do much wasn't particularly exciting. Um, and yeah, just doing some basic figures on, you know, I'm going to need a whole lot more money than what it looks like I'm going to have just purely from saving it. So. Yeah. And like, why should really people invest, do you think? Um, well, I mean, it's it's basically for that reason, like at some point you're going to want to stop working or, or unfortunately for a lot of people, you know, they may have some reason why they can't work any longer. Um, perhaps that's some sort of injury or something that, that they might sustain, you know, a little bit further down the track in life. So once you get to that point of either not being able to work or you just don't want to work anymore and you want freedom, essentially, um, you're going to have to have some money in order to do that. Unfortunately, you can't just, um, you can't just uh, pay the bills with fresh air. So you're going to need something to, to help you do that. And um, investing is, is by far and away the most reliable way to, to get to that. I mean, a lot of people might, you know, be praying that they're going to win lotto or something, but that's obviously not realistic for most people. And to put it in practical steps to kind of get to having some nest egg at the end of a career, um, I think investing is a massively important, you know, component of that. If we were to throw out like a rough figure um, in terms of your retirement, um, say you're looking to retire, it's, I mean, I guess in New Zealand, the, the retirement age is 65, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if we're looking at your retirement, you know, um, package or, or idea of, of, you know, the amount of money you want to have, how yep. much is that? Um, do you think, you know, by the time you turn 65, which is in 40 something years time, how much is, is Tom going to have in his, uh, I guess, bank account or in his, in his investing yeah well, portfolio. yeah, well, I'm hoping I have far more than enough and I can give some away. That would be the ideal. But um, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of rules of thumb out there. So um, a pretty commonly used one is the 4% rule, which basically says if you have an investment portfolio, you can sort of sustainably withdraw about 4% of that portfolio every year. And with the returns that you can generate with that money, that should basically sustain itself for a very long period of time. So if you take out 4% a year, um, and then that portfolio say earns 4%, then you're still at the same amount one year later and you can kind of repeat that process. So if you work backwards with that 4% rule, um, another way of doing this is saying um, you work out the amount you want to live off and multiply it by 25. That's again, uses that 4% rule example. So let's say, um, let's say, for example, I wanted to live on, just to make the maths easy, let's say I wanted to live on $100,000 a year, which I think, most people should hopefully be living pretty comfortably on that. Uh, yeah, so, so let's say you want to live on $100,000 a year in, in retirement. You'd basically multiply that number by 25, and that tells me you'd have to have about $2.5 million invested to um, conservatively, so that's probably more than enough um, to, to kind of meet that lifestyle. Um, so that's sort of the rough rule of thumb. If you thought you could live on $50,000 a year, you can multiply that by 25 and then you're at 1.25 million. And so that's sort of like a rough rule of thumb that, that a lot of um, financial advisor type people would, would use. 
Yeah. Do you did you at any point um you know you just mentioned financial advisors did you at any point kind of get financial advice from anyone or was this kind of all done on your own uh, I guess your research that you've done yourself? Yeah, this is all me. I, I've never talked to a financial advisor yeah. or anything. So uh, yeah, this is all me. Just um, I guess it, anytime you find something you're interested in, like if um, I don't know if I was super into cricket which I actually was at one point like I knew every cricket team every cricketer from every country and I knew every batsman's batting average it's a bit like that but you know applied to personal finance and investing rather than cricket right right that's a I guess you could have almost been a a cricket analyst uh, by by the way you're talking about it (laughs) yeah maybe like it's just weird like some things from some things for different people just click like for me I I kind of like numbers. Some pe- some people want to vomit every time they hear a whole bunch of numbers, but I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I've got this weird, weird obsession with it. So um, yeah, I, it's, yeah, but I mean, to answer your question, it's, it's entirely reading, watching YouTube, listening to podcasts, paying attention to what everyday people are talking about. You know, if they've been successful, what have they done to get there? That, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, Again, you've just mentioned uh, podcasts. You know, we were talking about it off air. Do you want to kind of briefly mention what type of podcasts uh, that you listen to, um, and maybe uh, for the people listening to this, you know, they could kind of tune into those podcasts as well, and I guess get an understanding of, um, I guess, what to invest in and how to invest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's quite a few out there. I might just grab my phone and, and bring up my podcast player. But there's a there's prop. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So for my for my job, every now and again, I'm traveling a lot, so I'm driving or flying somewhere or that sort of thing. Um, so I get through a lot of podcasts. I find it a little bit easier sometimes to make time for podcasts as opposed to sitting down and reading a book, for example, because I can kind of do it when I'm on the go. But um, yeah, there's a few few podcasts I listen to. So a couple, if you're like brand new to investing uh, and in New Zealand, there's one called the NZ Everyday Investor by Darcy Ungaro, who actually is a financial advisor, I think based in Auckland. That's really good if you want like general personal finance and investing stuff and he covers real estate, share markets, cryptocurrency, all sorts of stuff. Um, if you want to get a little bit more kind of into the weeds of like specific investment strategies, um, the one probably at the top of the list for me would be Invested, which is a podcast by Phil Town and Danny Altown. Um, Phil Town's been a pretty massive influence on how I basically um, analyze particular companies in the share market and and sort of build a portfolio so that would be one if you're interested more around i guess interested more in kind of like building up and investing sort of strategy that kind of fits your personality how did you how did you um come across phil town because he, he, you mentioned him quite a bit in your youtube channel um and obviously he does his podcast with his daughter as well um but yeah how did you how did you come across him and what was it about him that that you know kind of you know um not shine a light but you know caught your attention yep uh, the real random honest answer to that is I was on my podcast player and I typed in investing and it just popped up. <laughs> that's literally how I, that's literally how I first found Phil Town. Um, the invested podcast came up. Um, and I, I just heard that name actually start to pop up more and more after I discovered the podcast. So, uh, as a good friend of mine, uh, Brandon, who runs the new money YouTube channel over in Australia, he talks about Phil Town a lot and, and he sort of follows a similar investing strategy. Um, and it just made sense. Like, um, yeah, it's just sort of like, um, common sense seems to be kind of uncommon for whatever reason in in the world sometimes. And Phil Towns, a guy that from my perspective, just had a lot of common sense when it came to investing. Like a lot of people look at, look at the share market and they think of, 
charts and all these numbers and they think of like the wolf of wall street you know um whereas whereas phil town is someone who explained to me like when you're investing in the share market all you're doing is you're buying a small piece of ownership in real companies so the logical thing to do if you want to be good at investing in the share market is to understand the companies that you're going to invest in really well so if you know if you want to invest in apple for example you know uh, you can look up um investor reports from Apple and see, you know, they make this much of their money from iPhones, they make this much of their money from computers, they make this much of their money from iCloud. And, you know, you can start to understand what drives that actual business. So forget the share price and the chart, we're focusing on owning companies here. And the other thing that Phil Town stressed is, okay, if you're going to buy into a company like Apple, um, you've also got to pay a reasonable price. So for example, if you were going to buy uh, a rental property down the street and you knew <clears throat> you knew what the business did so you know just like apple earns money from their iphones you knew that that rental property you know rents out for roughly 500 dollars a week or or whatever that number is and then you can work backwards and say you know if this if this rental property is going to bring in like 25 grand a year in rent if I want a decent return, I can be willing to pay, I don't know, 500000 for that property. It's not going to make sense for me to pay $50 million for that house because the rent no, nowhere near justifies that price. So it's basically trying to think about companies and investing in the share market in a similar way. And that's what Phil Town talks about all day long. So that, that um, just made sense to me. It's putting things in a very practical context, I suppose. And I mean, I guess, um, you know, for, for people listening to this, you know, they, they might be into investing, they might not be. For the people that aren't into investing, where would you recommend them starting, you know, when they're first starting out as an investor, you know, um, you know, as a, you know, maybe what type of online broker they're looking for to books um, or, you know, we've already mentioned podcasts, uh, even following your YouTube channel. Where would you recommend starting out um, as a beginner? Uh, yeah, sure. I think, um, well, the place I actually very first, started and again we were talking about uh, this guy a little bit before we we started recording was um i read rich dad poor dad by robert kiyosaki which is a pretty short easy read that was literally the first book on money i ever let ever read um so that is actually yeah cool yeah i mean that honestly is that book was written in the 80s or 90s i think maybe the 90s and even even now that book like still makes a huge amount of sense and it's a great place to get started it's not super technical or anything but it's a really good place that explains some of the basics of why um you know some people make more intelligent financial decisions well. from others and and yeah, yeah. you know explaining that an asset is something that puts cash in your pocket and those mm. are the things that you want to accumulate over time and you know liabilities are things that takes money out of your pocket and those are the things that you don't necessarily want to accumulate over time. So that's a nice place to start. And that will give you a good base, I guess, on why different investors have different strategies or why people are trying to do the things that they're trying to do. It's because they're trying to build a base of assets that, you know, pay them cash every, every so often. Um, so that's a nice place to start. And then um, there's some pretty good resources out there, whether it's on YouTube or 
um, <clears throat> online blogs on that and that sort of thing. Um, one of the sponsors I'm, I'm, I, that I work with on my YouTube channel, Hatch, for example, has a good sort of beginners investing guide that you can go through, you know, really simply and is freely available and that sort of thing. So there's a few nice on online guides out there. Um, Robert Kiyosaki is a really nice place to start, though, if you're just um, really absolute beginner and, and want to get something happening. Yeah, as I mentioned, I, that was my first book too. And and you also said that, you know, um, easy read, which it completely is. Um, and it's actually put me on to, to other ones as well, um, which is a good thing. Um, myself, I've also read um, Richest Man in Babylon. Um, I'd recommend that one as well. Um, I, I found that pretty, you know, that's really old school, that book, um, even the way they talk um, and all, you know, the way that it's written, um, it's really old school, but I really enjoyed that one as well. Um, I'm currently on the the one that you've mentioned in, in your YouTube channel quite often is Benjamin Graham's um, Intelligent Investor. Yeah, cool. Um, and that one's really that's it's rough. got a lot of figures in that book. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of figures in that book, man. And it, I'm trying to get my head around that at the moment. But um, yeah, and and to be fair, it's taken me. I'm not the best of readers either, so it takes me a while to read a book. So you can imagine how long that book has taken me, bro. Um, but yeah, that that book is rough. <laughs> yeah, the Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham is really good. Like the the core philosophies in there. I think that book was written in like the 20s or the 30s. Like it's a, it's an old book. Um, maybe the 40s. I might have that slightly wrong, but it's old, <laughs> right? Um, and Ben Graham was a phenomenal investor. So for anyone listening that doesn't know, he was sort of the person that created this thing called value investing, which is essentially what kind of what I talked about before with Apple. It's, it's trying to identify, um, you know, shares as ownership in businesses. Um, businesses can be intelligently priced based on how much money they make. And if you can buy shares at prices that are well below what you think they should be worth based on how much money that that company makes, then you can make uh, pretty good profits doing that. So, um, he was a great teacher, not the best of writers. So that one's a grind, but, um, but, uh, yeah, if you're, um, if you're kind of moving up to that next, next level after rich dad bought it, it's probably not a bad place to go. Um, he, it's probably also fair to say, uh, that, uh, and I've also read, um, I guess online and whatnot. He, was that where, um, Warren Buffett kind of got all of his, um, ideas and whatnot from as well, his, his investing framework? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Warren Buffett still calls The Intelligent Investor the best investing book that was ever written. And, and he was, um, Ben Graham was actually Warren Buffett's teacher when he was, I think, doing his MBA at Columbia University. So um, he still applies a very similar investment framework, like what, 80 years later or something, you know, today, and, and still makes truckloads of money doing that. Yeah. Um, and so you've also mentioned that, that, you know, assets as well. What, what, what would you say, um, I guess your idea of assets are? Uh, yeah, this probably isn't the correct sort of accounting definition of an asset, but I tend to follow the Robert Kiyosaki definition of a of an asset as something that um, puts cash into your pocket. So, you know, things like uh, real estate, you know, real estate investments, uh, generally pay you rent and put cash in your pocket. Um, something like a car, even though, you know, the bank might view that as an asset when they're trying to give you a mortgage or something. Um, from a cash flow perspective, a car costs you money. It, you know, you're constantly paying for repairs and insurance and all sorts of stuff on it. So I'm trying to build the good kind of assets that, that pay me, uh, that um, will become more valuable over time, not things like a car that will become much less valuable over time. So is it fair to say that your YouTube channel is, is, is an asset as well? 
Uh, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one that, that's, um, yeah, starting to produce some some good cash flows. So, yeah, that would definitely go on that that bucket. Yeah, cool. Um, so if you don't mind, man, um, I know we were um, talking about it um, off, off air a little bit, um, but in simplest, I guess, terms, um, what is your investing framework? And I know you've mentioned some of this stuff already throughout the podcast already, um, but in the simplest terms, you know, for, for your beginner um person yeah what, what is it what is it that you look for i guess in companies or um i guess maybe even in, in etfs mate um yeah what, what is it that you kind of look into um that, that, that you haven't already mentioned yeah sure um you might have to remind me to come back to etfs if i forget here but my um my basic framework is trying to buy um good businesses at reasonable prices and basically rinse and repeat that strategy over a long period of time so trying to find businesses and i'm generally talking it this could be a private business like it could be a, a laundromat down the road or whatever but generally speaking i'm talking about buying shares and public companies on the on the stock exchange or the share market um, i'm trying to find businesses that i can understand you know things like apple or facebook or microsoft or google or um you know fonterra or something for me because i work in the agricultural industry you know these are all businesses that i understand pretty well um and for that reason i can have a reasonably well-informed opinion of what i think those businesses are likely to earn in future and that allows me to put a reasonably you know a reasonable range on what i think it's approximately worth and basically you know share market prices fluctuate up and down wildly um, particularly in the short term so anytime that those prices tend to fluctuate downwards and i think that you know the price that i can buy into a fonterra for example or whatever company it is for you that you understand um, anytime that i think the price gets well below what i think that company is genuinely worth based off the cash and the money that it produces um, then I will invest in that business. And, and I'm kind of just continually building up this big, long watch list of a whole bunch of companies that, that meet those criteria. And I'm kind of just monitoring prices, not every day or anything crazy like that, but, you know, checking in every couple of weeks or once a month or whatever on, you know, the companies that are on my watch list. And if they're at reasonable prices from my perspective, then I'm, you know, putting money to work in those companies. Cool. Um, and in terms of your investing, um, at this stage, do you only invest in stocks? And if so, why? Um, and uh, in the future, are you looking to get into, you know, um, you know, other assets such as real estate um, to bring mm -hmm. in money? Uh, yeah. So to date, I've yeah only invested in shares. So a couple of reasons, I guess the initial reason was I didn't have enough money to do anything else. So yeah, that's a pretty good reason to, to start investing in shares in, in my book. So um, yeah, that that's where I sort of started out and that still makes up um, basically all of my investments at the moment is, is shares. Um, I'm actually looking to buy a house this year. So um, that's, that's one uh, that's on the cards for me at the moment. So um, yeah, real estate investing is, has got some advantages, some disadvantages, but um, I meet a lot of people, as we both well know, have made a lot of money in real estate over the uh, past few decades. So um, yeah, it's something I'm, I'm looking to do this year. Hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll tick that um, first home purchase off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something that you, I mean, purchasing down down your ways or somewhere else in, in NZ? 
Uh, yeah, probably uh, probably up in Whangarei, actually. I'm, oh, I'm okay. looking at um, moving regions at, at some point this year. Um, get to lock in exactly when, but um, that will be the go-to place, which is actually quite nice because houses uh, up in Northland are a lot cheaper than here in Hamilton and a whole lot cheaper than uh, you're probably finding in Auckland. So. Talk to me, bro. Talk to me. <laughs> yeah, that'll... <laughs> That'll be a, a nice added benefit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and oh, I was going to also ask, um, in in terms of of uh, your living situation, um, what what does that look like at the moment? Are you renting? Are you you know staying at home? Um, I guess yeah. I mean, what is it? That, yeah. Well, what's 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 your living situation at the moment? Um, just so that you know, I guess the listeners can kind of get a better understanding. Um, you know, if they're in a similar situation. Yeah, so I'm renting. I'm about four and a half years out of uni. Um, when I first came to my first job out of uni, I lived at home for like three months or something as I was trying to track down a flat. Uh, but yeah, me and my girlfriend have got a very small flat. Um, some of our friends and family would say overly small because it's not particularly visitor friendly. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I, I've just been like, I'm yeah, four or five years out of uni and I'm just still living like a student. Like <laughs> I'm living in a in a grotty little one bedroom flat with my girlfriend trying to save like an animal and um, yeah, been kind of running that routine for the past few years now. What is, what is that? Um, what does rent look like on your end and, and how do you, um, you know, with, in terms of, I guess, uh, salary, um, with the income that you're making, um, how much are you obviously, um, having to pay in rent? Um, and then how much are you able to, you know, put away to, to investing, put away to emergency funds and saving, I guess, for your, for your, you know, future house? Yeah, sure. So um, on the rent part, um, my rent, I'm, I'm pretty confident is very cheap. And I think that's partly because um, we just found a, a good place that for whatever reason was, you know, relatively cheap uh, at the time. And we've just stayed there for like four years. So <laughs> that's the other thing. Like we haven't, we haven't, uh, we haven't had any, what I would call lifestyle creep. Like we haven't, you know, felt the pressure to go from, living like a student so oh, our friends just bought a four bedroom house so we should probably upgrade as well like I've, I've just continued living like I'm 19 and, and at uni again and living on noodles or whatever the diet probably has got a bit better but, but still living in the flat um so yeah I think I've upgraded our, to bread now yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah I throw the occasional steak in there but I, I'm not getting, I'm not getting too um, well, for a power yeah. left I guess you're needing yeah yeah got to get the protein in that's that's an important one yeah. so um yeah uh, my current rent so this is split between me and my girlfriend my current rent I yep. think is 280 dollars a week um so about 140 dollars for each of us i guess per week which um i think by hamilton standards is pretty cheap and again probably by auckland standards is like super cheap i don't know what you pay for rent but uh, uh, that's about yeah that, i mean um yeah i guess it depends on the type of situation you might be flat and you might be yeah yeah um, sure. whatever yeah. it is but yeah it's, it's about this yeah it's actually roughly around the same okay um, yeah yeah cool and whatnot yeah yeah that's pretty good cool um <clears throat> yeah so that is definitely my biggest expense. I'm actually lucky to have a <clears throat> have a vehicle for work now, which I've just gotten like the last year. So I oh, don't okay. own a car, don't have to pay insurance or fuel or regos or service, anything like that, which is like so good. Mm. Like not only from a financial perspective, but just life admin. Like <laughs> it's yeah, good yeah. to not have that stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I um I don't know that this is the way that would work for for most people or whether this fits everyone's personality but in terms of saving i basically cover my living costs um 
I have, you know, a little bit of money for like everyday spending and stuff. And then I just save as much as humanly possible. That's kind of the way that I've always approached it. Approach it. Um, I follow the sort of Robert Kiyosaki again approach of anytime money hits my bank account, I pay myself first, which basically means I put money into uh, a saving savings and investment accounts, and then I basically live on what's left after that. So I have sort of a set amount that that gets funneled off immediately um, when I get paid. So I don't have the the chance even to spend it. I've just kind of got the small amount that's left after that. <clears throat> and I've run that exact system since I first came out of uni. So right. any pay rises that I've had or any side income that's coming from the YouTube channel, literally 100% of that has been saved. So mm. if I get a pay rise where I get, you know, an extra 50 or a hundred dollars a fortnight or something, I bump up that amount that I pay myself first by 50 or a hundred dollars a fortnight. Like that literally all gets funneled. So my living costs haven't moved a cent since like I left uni four or five years ago. And I don't know if that would work for most people, but I'm someone that, you know, understands, um, what you need. Yeah. Understands what I need. Like I really don't care what other people think of how much I spend on going out to dinner or whatever, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. And and like, I I really can see the benefits of, I guess, maybe sacrificing a little bit now, essentially, and and putting more money towards long-term investments and trying to grow something. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I approach it. So if, if, if we, um, can talk about figures. I don't want to talk about exactly how much you make, but um, in terms of say, you know, if we gave a, a, a you know an example, um, say a thousand dollars, because that's probably something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, how how much are you putting away into these certain um, accounts? Yeah, sure. So um, probably the best way to describe that is when I first came out of uni. Um, I was probably able to put roughly like forty percent of my after tax income into savings and investments approximately. Um, and basically since my living costs haven't moved and any extra pay that I get since then, I've just put directly to savings, that percentage has kind of just gone up over time as I've you know, slowly earned more and more money. So um, I don't know the exact figure off the top of my head, but I would hazard a guess that I'm probably pushing like 60% now, roughly, um, all going towards sort of, savings and investments which certainly didn't happen overnight but you know i've managed to be able to work towards that and part of that has been through you know just trying to live below my means and live really cheaply um but but frankly a a lot of that has come from just trying to make more money but like there's only so far that you can get your expenses down and at a certain point if you want to push a bit further than that you have to do something to try and generate a bit more income as well. So that's probably roughly where I'm sitting at the moment. But again, I think, um, sorry, yeah. one last thing I'll say. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. But again, like my, my situation is different from other people. So I don't own a car. Like I said, I don't own a house. I don't have kids. Like I live a very lean lifestyle financially. So I'm in a position where I can do that. And, you know, if I, if I had kids and owned a home and had a car and all that, I'm sure that the numbers would be quite different, but I'm sort of taking yeah. advantage of the fact that I am in my twenties and don't have all those things on my plate. And yeah. I'm trying to take advantage of that as much as I can, to be honest, which I think is an incredibly powerful tool that, that a lot of people in their twenties can, 
um, kind of pull off if they really want to. Um, and you did touch on this um, uh, um, just just then um, in terms of living below your means. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to downplay how hard it can be if you have a really low income or something like that. But the formula, frankly, for getting ahead is very basic. And again, I'm a, quite a mathematical person, so I like to put this into simple equations. It's basically how much can you save over time and how much, what sort of return do you make over time is sort of entirely defines how much you end up with at the end. So, um, you know, if you make $1,500 a fortnight or something um, and you spend $1,500, it's pretty hard to save anything consistently. So um, the lower, the I guess the higher you can get that income or the lower you can get those expenses or ideally a combination of both, the more you can invest and in, the more you can, you know, save and grow over time. So um, yeah, like I know a lot of people sort of bow to the pressure of what their peers are doing and, you know, they think they have to own a nice car or have the latest iPhone or, or all that. But um, I, yeah, I, I think you're going to be far better off if you try to avoid keeping up with the Joneses and you just do your own thing. Well, and, and, and um, you know, further to that, you know, I've also seen other, um, you know, your, your millionaires or billionaires these days, you know, for example, you know, Apple's, um, you know, founder, um, who, who was he again? Remind me. Uh, so Tim Cook's the CEO, but Steve Jobs was the founder. Before Steve that. Jobs. Yep. Yes. You know, I often see um, pictures of him online and he's wearing the same clothes every single day. And I think Jeff Bezos of Amazon, you know, he, he drove that crappy car for a long, long time. And, yep. you know, he, he, you know, and he would give reasons like, you know, well, why do I need to drive an expensive car when, you know, I've got all the money in the world, eh? Yep. Yeah, and, and same with Warren Buffett. Like he's a big, um, huge, yeah, he's a huge influence on the way that I invest my money and live my life in a lot of ways. Like he's, he's what like the second or third richest person in the world right now. Like you think of, you know, people that have these enormous mansions and stuff and just are spending huge amounts of money. And here's Warren Buffett living in the same three or four bedroom house that he bought in the 1950s with his with his wife back then, and and he drives a. He went and bought a car like this was in an old documentary of him, but he went and bought a car in like 2012 or something. Um, and it was new, but it had been in like a hailstorm. So it had dents that had been repaired and he got a discount on it. And at the time, <laughs> he's still like the second richest person on the planet. And he's buying this like he's like, I got a good deal. I'm not buying a Lamborghini. Right, how or cool is that? Yeah. Though, eh? That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool to hear that, man. Um, You know you don't you don't need it obviously it's funny because eh, I, I do see stories or whatnot or um even books you know they they say you know um exactly what i mentioned before you know the richest people in the world literally can wear flip-flops yep. and you know you just don't know that they're you know a millionaire or a billionaire you know yeah for sure i mean it's like um for me it's not about living some fancy lifestyle the the point i'm trying to get to is having freedom and, and having the ability to uh, you know, I, I really enjoy my job, but if I ever wanted to stop working, I want to have the ability to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be, um, you know, pushing retirement further and further out by spending a bunch of money today, which is exactly what you're doing when you're spending money on a fancy car or something. If effectively what you're doing is you're making it harder for yourself to reach some end point where you can retire comfortably. So um, that's what I'd much rather focus on. Yeah, an example of my end, man, um, I, I'm actually, I was really into shoes. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, you, you talked to me, yeah, bro. You talked to me maybe like a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. Like, I was buying literally shoes on shoes on shoes, yep. you know, saving up maybe, you know, every second paycheck, then going out buying, you know, $200 pair of shoes. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, and so now I've got all these bloody shoes in my freaking room <laughs> that I don't even wear yeah. anymore. 
you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I wear the same shoes literally every day and, you know, it's, it's good old chucks, you know? Yeah, you're, you're probably what I used to be like with cricket where I knew everyone's batting average. Like, you'll know every <laughs> pair of sneakers ever, right? <laughs> I try to, I try to. But, yeah, <laughs> today it's it's more or less, yeah, I, I wish I could get that, but I'm not going to get that. <laughs> I've got another goal, you know, in mind anyway. Yeah, I know a lot of people are into shoes. Do they ever, like, go, go up in value or are you just collecting them because you, no. you like to wear them and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, exactly, yeah. Well, you know, there, there are shoes that obviously go up in value for sure. Um, and then there are your shoes that, you know, just casually wear, you know, just for style, you know, that's yep. all it is. Um, but, yeah, you know, there are your shoes, you know, depending on the person's name. For example, you know, Michael Jordan, yep. um, you know, whose who's line of shoes, you know, they tend to go up in, in you know, price uh, for whatever reason, you know, the more, uh, I guess, you know, as they say, old school or, you know, how, you know, the more older the shoe is, uh, the more valuable it becomes, you know, especially if it's in good nick, you know, good condition. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, it sort of reminds me of how people in the last year or so got into like collecting Pokemon cards and even people that collect watches and that kind of stuff. Well, that, that, that's funny you also say that, bro, because um, you, I'm, I'm sure you know, you know, the the um, social media, um, the social media guy, um, Gary V. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was speaking about, um, you know, sports cards recently. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe not recently, maybe, you know, within the last year though. Um, and he was saying something like, um, you know, that that's the next thing that people should be investing in. Because, um, yeah, he believes that these cards are going to be going over value. Well, and I was speaking with a mate of mine not too long ago and, um, you know, LeBron James card, um, you know, I'm not into cards or anything, but, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, they'll, they'll know, but this, this card was like worth a million dollars or something like that. Don't, you know, don't, I'm not quite, don't quote me. You know, but yeah. you know, it was something like that, you know, and I'm like, Frickin' heck, people pay for these bloody cards, you know, and yeah, yeah, crazy. But you know, on these cards, these sporting cards, you know, these athletes they sign them or they have like a pair of um, you know, like a, a jersey, um, like a like a part of the jersey that that's not torn off but cut out and, and put into the card. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it's I guess considered a not an investment, but I guess, you know, something that's worth uh of value. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd, I'd rather if people are gonna spend money on what I would describe as largely like worthless stuff. <laughs> I think it's um it's far better if you're into collecting like sports cards and watches and maybe even shoes like you were than um yeah. collecting cars and motorbikes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess today I've learned my lesson, man. I don't buy any more pairs of shoes for a long, 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 long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're sorted for shoes for what a few years at least, yeah. decades maybe. Yeah, well, I'd like to be one of those like you know types of people bro that that you know has over you know 365 pairs of shoes they can wear a shoe for you know each day holy smokes <laughs> <laughs> yeah man um cool well hey let's get back into it anyway i mean um let, let's talk about um i guess some common mistakes you know i think that's an important thing that that we should probably discuss um yeah in this podcast um yeah w- what are some common mistakes and, and have you made any and if you have um how have you learned from it yeah, sure. I guess the way I think about it is sort of two sides of it. So there's the personal finance side, which is sort of making and investing money. And then there's the actual investing side of it. And there's um, <clears throat> there's a long list of mistakes people make there and that I've made. And I'm sure a, a longer list that I'll make out in future of mistakes that I do. But um, yeah. probably on the, on the personal finance side, like one of the things that I think is very common, and this is the way that I did it before sort of the Robert Kiyosaki um, you know, revelations that I had was um, a lot of people will get paid and 
they will maybe have like an FPOS card or debit card or something linked to their main account that they get paid into and they'll spend money. And, you know, when it rolls around to the next fortnight or however often they'll get paid, they'll say, oh, look, I've got, you know, this much left, $100 left or something. Maybe I should put that into savings. So they're sort of spending first and saving second, I suppose. Whereas one of the most significant switches that I made, and this is very much the old school Robert Kiyosaki, pay yourself first. Probably heard this a million times if you've listened to anyone talk about personal finance ever, but it's basically flipping that in reverse. It's saying when you get paid, set some of that aside immediately and then um, live on what's left. So rather than spending first and saving second, you're sort of saving first and spending second. So that I think is probably the biggest mistake most people make and certainly something I was guilty of um, sort of early on as well. Um, and on the investing side, there's there's so many different things people do. Like um, probably yeah, maybe maybe just list your maybe list like two or three. Yeah, sure. Okay, so probably the first thing, um, and this is probably going to be quite sort of invested in shares specific. Um, as a lot of people get too caught up in short term results. So, um, and again, for me, like the first time I ever invested in shares. Um, you know, if, if people listening have never done it before, you, uh, you know, you put money into a brokerage account, which is an account that you can then, you know, use that cash to buy shares in these companies. Uh, you then go and buy some shares and now you own, you know, 100 shares of some company or whatever. And the stock market's open five days a week. So here I was sitting at work, looking at my phone, refreshing the price every three seconds and, and saying, you know, oh, I just lost 50 cents or I'm up $2 or, you know, this yeah. kind of stuff. And everyone's done that eh, as a beginner everyone does that <laughs> and um new people yeah. will continue to do it but i'm telling you it's a complete waste of time to, <laughs> to, to do that yeah. um and i guess that's not necessarily a mistake in and of itself um the mistake would be if you act if you act on some of those price changes so you know if you see um if you see shares that you own in a company go down 10 percent, and then you say oh crap, you know, this is going down. I better sell it before it goes down some more kind of stuff. Um, I think that's when you can get into a lot of trouble. Like one of the most basic ideas of investing is we want to, as obvious as it sounds, we want to buy low and sell high, right? <laughs> Whereas a lot of people, um, just because of pure emotion, um, do the exact opposite. They'll buy something when it's going up a lot because they think, oh, maybe it'll go up a bit further. So they're buying high. And then the price will crash on them or even just go down a couple percent, especially if in newer, sometimes even, even that can be a bit scary when you're first getting started. And they'll say, oh, I've missed it. You know, this is going down. I should sell out. And suddenly you've done the reverse and you've bought high and you've, you've sold low. So um, that sort of short-term focus mm -hmm. and acting on those little price movements that happen all the time is probably the, the most common mistake. Yeah. And you know, it, um, you, you did mention, you know, people panic when, when all of a sudden there's a sudden drop or, you know, the other way around when there's a sudden rise in, in, in the market. And if I can go back to the yeah. intelligent investor, one thing that I got out of that Benjamin Graham book is, you know, he said, never react to a sudden drop and never react to a sudden rise. Um, and so, yeah, that can kind of, yeah, that comes off as, as, you know, um, in relation to just what you've just, you've just commented on. Yeah, exactly. Like one of, one of the main lessons from Ben Graham, which, which you're describing is, um, the market is there to serve you and not to instruct you. So yeah, good um, words. Ben, ben Graham describes um, describes the stock market as this character called Mr. Market. And, and basically the way to think about Mr. Market is he's your business partner. He He's a great friend of yours because he comes to you every day and allows you to 
Um, he lets you buy any business that you please, you know, all, there's all these public companies and he lets you, he lets you buy them uh, as often as you want yeah. and you can buy as much as you want. And then uh, if you own any shares, he'll also, you can also sell those to Mr. Market as often as you want and, you know, as in as big a quantity as you want. So you can buy and sell from him every day. The only, the only catch is that Mr. Market names the price. Yeah. So uh, you, you can't come up with the price of what you want to buy from him and you can't come up with the price of what you want to sell uh, to him. Um, but the thing with Mr. Market is he is, um, He's a raging alcoholic and he's extremely emotional and bipolar. And every now and again, um, Mr. Market will try and uh, he will price things very irrationally. And basically, you know, you'll be able to buy things from Mr. Market very cheap and you'll be able to sell things to Mr. Market very expensive. So as much as we like Mr. Market, our job is to take advantage of him as, as much as we possibly can. You also did touch on the mistake, um, you know, people do buy things at a high point and then they sell them at a very low point, um, you know, just yep. because it's drops, you know, that's a mistake I've made as well. You know, I, I've actually made that mistake. I bought something at, at, I guess, a relatively higher price than what it should have been. I sold it um, mm -hmm. because I panicked. Um, and, you know, another common mistake I, I also made was I actually repurchased that same thing, um, you know, um, just because I thought, okay, it's going to, you know, turn around and I'm going to make my money back. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's another common mistake, I guess. That is another common mistake. Yeah, if, if you do lose money on something for some reason, there's there's a human thing that's in the back of the, your mind that's <laughs> like, you know, I've got to make that money back in the exact same way that I tried to make money the first time and lost it. It's sort of you see that a lot with people when they go to, you know, play blackjack or go to pokies or something, right? You know, and they, <laughs> and they lose a little bit of money and they're like, I'll just put in another twenty yeah. bucks and, and try get it all back, yeah, and maybe but... some more. Um, yeah, exact same thing. Sounds like you've done that at the pokies quite a few times, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, jokes, no. Jokes. <laughs> I think you're a little bit too wise for that. Um, cool. Um, do you do you have another uh, maybe another point, another second uh, common mistake that that people um, often make uh, when it comes to investing? Yeah, what's another common one? Um, I think um, I guess the way that I think about investing is is pretty straightforward. Like I, I talked about earlier, trying to identify good businesses and trying to buy them at reasonable prices. So. I would describe a mistake as anything that doesn't tick those two boxes. So, you know, people that, uh, again, are buying things just because they're going up or selling things just because they're going down or um, maybe they're concerned about some sort of short-term news. So, you know, let's say we bought Apple, for example, at a reasonable price and you see this news article from some random website that says, we think uh, Apple's going to go down because it's, forming some sort of shape on a chart or something right like completely unrelated to the business results so um yeah i guess if you can tick those two criteria which is good business reasonable price uh you're pretty much set you just lock that investment away and come back in a few years and hopefully it's worked out pretty well which it should do if you if you write on those two things and Anything that sort of strays from that criteria is typically a mistake, I would say. Yeah, cool. Hey, let's get into some questions that um, I guess our listeners have, have kind of um, put together um, for us. Um, for one thing, uh, number one, um, what's in your portfolio? Um, or better yet, I guess, what are maybe one or two um, things that, that or companies that you invest in? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I won't lay out the whole portfolio, but I'll give you a, I'll give you maybe one that's worked out well and one that's worked out poorly. How's that? So yeah, um, yeah, cool, cool. Probably probably the best investment I've made so far, or or at least the one I'm 
probably most proud of, I would say. Like it wasn't, it was probably the first investment that I ever made that was in this sort of value investing mindset, good business, reasonable price. Um, and this isn't a, a recommendation to go buy the stock or anything. But yeah, yeah, cool. And do you also mind saying like the year that you invested in them or how long you've you've had you know, yeah, yeah. money in, yeah, for in, sure. involved in that? Yeah, yeah, no worries. So so the company I bought was called Thor Industries. Um, Thor Industries is basically a, a recreational vehicle, um, you know, motorhomes, caravans kind of company. They own a bunch of different brands. Um like Airstream, Jayco, Swift, all that kind of stuff that you um, holds you up in traffic on the New Zealand roads in the summers. And um, basically that that business uh, was one that I identified in late 2018, I think it was. Um, hang on, where are we now? Yeah, I think it was late, late 2018. Um, I actually bought that stock on my birthday. I don't know. Oh, that was just a okay. coincidence. I didn't feel like good about the company on my birthday or anything. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It worked out well. So, so that was one I bought. Um, it was interesting because that was the first time I'd made what I, you know, by my, um, you know, financial position at the time, I felt that that was quite a big investment for me at the time. Like it was a reasonable chunk of my portfolio. And basically what happened over the next two months is it went down about 30%. And, and um, I was still pretty confident in the business. Um, admittedly, that was my first time that I'd really had a big investment go down that much. And even though I think it, I, I wouldn't lose in a wink of sleep over things like that now. But at the time I was getting a little bit nervous. I was like, okay, I think this is going to work out pretty well, but this is happening. Um, and I just held like I was confident in the business. The The business results kept coming out over, you know, every few months and it was all looking good. It was kind of fitting with what I thought. Um, and that business has gone on to go up about double and a half roughly. So I'm at maybe like 150% on that investment since 2018. Plus it's also paid me, I don't know, maybe roughly 10% of my money I've gotten back in. Uh, they pay like a quarterly dividend as well. So I've gotten some cash back kind of in the meantime with that one as well. So yeah, that's worked out well. I still hold that today. That's a, that's a good example of a business that has worked out quite well. Um, in terms of one that hasn't, so uh, I owned a business called Fiat Chrysler, which um, as a name suggests, is a car company. Um, Fiat Chrysler isn't the greatest name it doesn't entirely represent what they own they do own fiat and chrysler but their biggest brands by far and away are things like jeep um ram trucks maserati um, they own a few different brands in there now um so that was a business that i bought um i've sold most of my stake in that one now but i still own a little bit of it um, and that was a business that was working really really well up until COVID hit because when COVID hit they had to basically shut down all their factories for a period of time around the various countries where they do their manufacturing because of lockdowns and stuff. Um, and car businesses are, are okay companies in good times. So um, Fiat Chrysler, for example, brings in roughly about $100 billion in sales every year. So they have a huge amount of sales, but the amount that they actually earn on those sales is quite low. So they'll probably only keep maybe three or 4% of that as profits. Um, and that's sort of during good times. Now, what happens in, in bad times is if that, say, $100 billion in sales drops by $10 billion, um, Fiat Chrysler is a company that doesn't have a lot of room to reduce their costs by about $10 billion. So they can go from earning you know, modest profits um, each year to suddenly losing huge amounts of money. <laughs> and um, 
from my perspective, when they went through that, that lockdown, I felt that there was actually quite a significant chance of losing like four or five years profit, like in one year is going to be a pretty significant hit. So um, the share price went down, I think, I think it was probably down roughly 40% when I sold most of my position. I actually held on to a chunk of that. Um, and the investment has now actually gone back up and worked up pretty well, uh, all things considered. So it was probably a mistake in hindsight to sell. Um, but that would be an example of the good and the bad, I suppose, for you. Um, cool. And number two, um, in terms of companies or um, shares that you purchase, um, how long do you hold on to them um, and when do you recommend on selling? Uh, yeah, so I guess the ideal holding period is forever. Like the the ideal investment would be something that you can put money into and it just grows at 20% a year or some phenomenally high you know, rate of return and it just does that forever. That, that would be the perfect investment. So, um, you know, if you'd invested in Amazon in, in 2001 or Apple in the 1980s or something, you've, you've pretty much experienced that. You've basically had that type of return for a very long period of time. So um, that would be the ideal investment. Um, but I do sell things. So if I think that my investment thesis is kind of wrong or broken, like in the Fiat Chrysler example, that's a, that's a time where I'll sell. Um, and, you know, we've talked, uh, or at least I've talked a fair bit through this podcast about paying an intelligent price for a company. So if I ever feel like a price is just irrationally high and Mr. Market is, uh, you know, overly excited about a business, that's a time where I might sell as well. Um, particularly if I've got a better place to put that money. If, um, if I'm going to sell that stock, sell that investment, and it's just going to sit in cash and kind of earn nothing while I'm looking for something else, that's a time where I might be a bit more hesitant to sell. But if I've got something that I think super undervalued, <clears throat> and I've got this investment that I already own that's really overvalued, um, from my perspective, that's a time where I might sell also. Cool. Uh, and number three, um, we've already, okay, this, this, this question was any books that um, encourage help um, you to, uh, or that you would recommend, but we, we've already mentioned, I guess, Robert Kiyosaki, et cetera, um, and a, a couple of other books. But if you are reading a book now, um, I'm just rephrasing this question already um, on the spot, but if you are reading a book now, what, what book is that? Uh, yeah, I am reading a book now and it's called, it's actually kind of unrelated to investing. It's a book called Range and I'm forgetting the name of the author actually but um that's basically a book about how how generalists tend to succeed um rather than people that specialize heavily in a particular field so that's been kind of interesting um in terms of investing books um yeah like i said we've already mentioned a couple but if i had to throw maybe one or two more in there um invested by phil town we mentioned the podcast but there's actually a book with the same name which is quite good and again a fairly easy read so that might be sort of the next step up from robert kiyosaki um, and one of the other books that I actually read during lockdown last year was a book called Hundred Baggers by Chris Mayer or Chris Meyer. Um, that's basically a book that studies um, <clears throat> studies investments that have done extremely well. So Hundred Baggers is, is a an investment that's gone up a hundred x. So you invest a hundred dollars and it's gone to a thousand dollars, or you invest a hundred thousand dollars and it's gone to uh, geez, what's the maths on that? $10 million. Um, you know, it's gone up 100x. So sort of a case study of uh, about 300 of those companies over the past 50 years and some of the common characteristics of, um, of, of those businesses. I'm not sure if I got the maths right in that first example, but 100x is a lot. So, so that's, a, that's a, um, a good book to, to get through as well. Pretty easy read. It's like 
not super long either. Yeah, don't worry about getting the figures right, mate. Let's put it this way. I'm not the best <laughs> at math either. So, um, yeah. yeah, you're a lot better than what I would go. be anyway. It's what calculators are for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your Casio calculators, eh? <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Um, and let's talk about, I guess, some terminology questions um, that, that some of the listeners have also asked. Um, what are ETFs? Uh, sure. So, an ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. So, um, there's a whole bunch of different types of ETFs. There seems to be an ETF for everything these days, but an ETF is basically, it, it trades on the share markets just like a company would, and you can buy shares in that exchange traded fund. And that fund is typically a basket of a whole bunch of investments. So a common example, uh, New Zealand would be something like a New Zealand top 50 ETF. So if you buy that New Zealand top 50 ETF, you can buy that one sort of fund that one investment on the stock market and within that fund you're diversified across say 50 companies so um, each ETF will have a different sort of investment um, <clears throat> investment goal or investment criteria but that's basically what it is it's a simple way of getting easy diversification across an industry or an entire country stock market or anything like that cool and um, what what is a bond uh, yeah, I, I must say I'm not much of a bond investor, but a bond is basically a form of investing in debt. So, um, you know, imagine you're a, imagine, let's just use Apple because we keep, because oh, I keep using it as an example. So uh, let's say I'm Apple and I have no cash and I really want to invest some money in uh, producing a new iPhone. Um, what you can do is you can, um you can issue a bond. So that's basically saying, I want to borrow money from a whole bunch of investors. Um, and those investors can buy this bond for me, which is basically just like a mortgage, like I'm, I'm getting a mortgage from a group of investors. They're, they're buying bonds. So when you invest in a bond, you're basically lending money to Apple in this case. Um, Apple will pay you an interest rate on those bonds. And at the uh, end of the lifetime of the, that bond. So they typically have a time frame on them, whether it's five years or 10 years. Um, at the end of that time frame, Apple will repay all the money that you lent them initially. So uh, you've gotten that interest in the meantime, and then you also get kind of repaid at the end. So all sorts of bonds. That's an example of a corporate bond, one from a company, but there's also um, government bonds and uh, all sorts of stuff like that cool. too. Uh, another question. Uh, hi, Tom. Uh I hope you're well. Um, what is dollar cost averaging and would you recommend it? Thank you. And I am well. Uh, so the, uh, yeah, dollar cost averaging is basically the, um, it's ba it basically just means that you consistently purchase into an investment. So rather than putting a lump sum into, I don't know, something like a, an NZ top 50 ETF, like we just explained, um, rather than putting in a lump sum of money, you consistently buy that ETF for a group of stocks or whatever it might be over time. So the advantage to dollar cost averaging basically is you're not going to <clears throat> accidentally buy in right at the top of the market, or you're not going to um, buy in all at the bottom of the market or somewhere in the middle. Um, like you might, if you were just to put in a big lump sum of money all at once, you, there may be a chance that you, you know, put all that money in right at the top, for example. So if you're dollar cost averaging, what you would, what you would do is you would buy into some set of investments every week or month or year, and you just consistently buy and you'd basically average out your purchase price over a long period of time. So I think it's a pretty good way to go for most people. Okay. Um, and this is actually a personal question, I guess, in regards to that dollar cost averaging, um, just because you're explaining it. Is it something that you do um, 
with any of your investments um, and especially with just your you know single companies? Yeah, if I was an ETF investor and someone that was just buying like a New Zealand top 50, for example, um, I probably would because when you're buying into an ETF or something, basically what you're saying is, um, I just want to get the average return of the stock market over a long period of time. So I'll just consistently buy into it and kind of not think about it too hard, which works really well. Um, with individual companies, I actually have a kind of different approach. So I guess I'm consistently putting money into my investment accounts. And initially that will just sit as cash um, as I sort of you know pay myself first and so on. But I'm generally not actually buying the companies until I, they get to sort of my buy price with you know where I think the valuation uh, sort of sits and where I'd be willing to buy. So there can actually be times where I sort of build up a bit of a, um, you know, larger cash position, you know, as a percentage of my portfolio. And then, um, you know, if things get to the right price, I could go from, you know, 25% of my portfolio as cash to 0% overnight, like if the price is right. So um, yeah, it's not quite as, um regimented sort of consistent purchasing with the individual companies awesome um back to the questions then um cool uh hi tom uh one term that that confuses me quite often is compound interest could you please explain this to me uh yeah sure so compound interest is basically interest on interest on interest on interest on interest times infinity however long you're investing so um yeah let's say you've got a bank account that earns like five percent a year that doesn't really exist these days but let's just say hypothetically it does and you've got a hundred dollars in that bank account so that would mean uh, every year that bank account's gonna pay you five dollars if you get in your five percent interest now if you went and spent that five dollars um you'd still have a hundred in your bank account and you've gone and spent your five which is which is fine uh, and each year that bank account would continue continue to pay you five dollars you go spend your five dollars pay five dollars again you spend your five dollars again the next year that's an example of what's called simple interest so you're just getting that same payment every single time uh, compound interest would be if you got that five dollars and you stuck that back in the bank account so you now have a hundred and five dollars and the next year, you're going to still get your $5, but you're also actually going to get 5% of the $5 that you saved last year. So you're actually going to get, I don't know what the maths is, but slightly more than $5. And then the next year, you'll have maybe 110 or $111 sitting in there, and you'll get a slightly larger payment again. So it's sort of that snowballing effect of getting interest on your interest and so on, which is um, what Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. And that's why um, you can grow small amounts of money into some very large numbers if you invest consistently for a long time. Yeah, cool. Um, another question is, uh, oh, okay. Um, we, we actually briefly touched on this before, bro, um, about property. Um, mm -hmm. uh, are you looking to get into property investing in the near future? Yeah, I am. So I'm going to try try tick that one off this year with the first home purchase. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people like have first on their priority list. Like I've I'm lucky enough to have been in the position to to buy a property for probably close to two years now actually, but I just haven't pulled the trigger on it. Um, and I haven't felt the net like I haven't felt forced into doing that because I've got share market stuff on the side and I can continue investing in that and still sort of feel like I'm progressing forward. But um, yeah, there's some advantages to real estate. Um, you can borrow money, which is a um, sort of a double-edged sword. It can be very powerful for you for growing wealth if it's used properly and, and put into good investments. It can always, and it can also be a negative if, um, you know, if house prices went down or if, um, you know, something happened and didn't work out so well with that investment, you, you're sort of leveraged to that price movement. So 
you know, your, your property can go down 5%, but your equity in that property can go down a whole lot more or, or up a whole lot more if that sort of home price moves, moves cool. up or down. Um, another question, what is a stock market bubble? Um, and also, uh, what is a bull market? Uh, yeah, stock market bubble. Um, I guess it's called a bubble because when you're in it, you, you kind of can't see what's going on because you don't know you're in a bubble, right? It's sort of see-through. So, um, but, but that generally refers to when prices are sort of irrationally high. So, um, you know, a, a good example is the tech bubble in, in the 2000. So, uh, yeah, around 1999, 2000. So that was a time where there were all these new technology companies coming onto the stock market, which basically many of them had no businesses, like they were not earning money. Um, many of them were losing money, but they were getting these massive valuations slapped onto them. And um, at some point, those valuations have to come back to reality. So that was sort of the bubble burst, I suppose, as, as the prices came down. Um, and what was the other one? A bull market, was it? The bull market. Yeah. So basically, a bull market is just a sustained period of time we prices go up. So the opposite of that is a bear market. There's more technical definitions. I think a bear market is anything where stock market prices go down more than 20% in a quarter or something along those lines. But um, basically a bear mar- a bull market is when stock prices go up over a period of time, which is sort of what we've had since the financial crisis in 2009. Um, and a bear market would be like what we had in 2008, the year before that through the financial crisis where prices came down, I think, peaked trough about 50% from memory. Yeah, cool. Um, and what if someone is in debt? Should they invest? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. So um, it depends on the debt, I think, is the answer. Like um, I'm in debt. I've got a student loan. That That's debt. Um, the great thing with student loans, though, is they're interest-free and it's not really costing me anything to have that debt. So that's an example of a debt that I'm not paying down more than I have to. Like it's, you know, a portion of my salary gets put... Mm towards paying that student loan because that's just the way it works, but I'm not um, intentionally going out and putting more money towards paying off that student loan because it doesn't make sense to do that financially. If I can put that money into investments that are going to earn more than 0% in this case, which is the interest rate on my student loan. So if you've got a credit card debt, which is like, you know, 20% interest or something, um, you're not going to be able to reliably earn 20% a year in the stock market. So that would be an example of a bad debt that is probably a good idea to pay off. And then somewhere in the middle of those two things, you have things like mortgages. So um, that's a that's a topic that people can debate all day long, whether they think that's a good idea to pay off or not. I tend to be in the camp of it's probably okay not to pay it off super quickly if, if you're earning... Uh, more on your investments than that money is sort of costing you to borrow. So for example, if you're earning a 8% return on a rental property and you're borrowing money at 3%, I think that's actually quite good debt to have and that can be quite a powerful tool. But um, yeah, don't take that as advice. That's very much a personal preference one and it kind of depends on your situation. Well, again, I guess, you know, if you switch that around, you know, the 3% and the 8%, you know, um, you know your, your debt was 8%, but you're only getting 3% from that, you know, investment, yep. that's, I guess, considered bad, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty straightforward. Cool. Um, how much of your portfolio is cash? So if you have any, yeah, I do. Um, it's unusually high right now, just because I basically have a house deposit on the side. So, <laughs> so if you were to, so yeah, so quite a lot at the moment, but if you were to ignore that and just, 
purely look at what I would class as stock market investments and cash that I could invest tomorrow if I wanted to, and it wouldn't affect my ability to buy a house. Um, maybe like 10%, roughly, something like that. Um, but it fluctuates. It's been as high as 50% and as low as zero. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it moves yeah, cool. around a bit. Um, and another question is what percentage of pay would um, you ideally put away? I think you've already touched on this already, um, which is about 60%. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's again, rough rules of thumb on this. Like um, I think if for most people, if you can save about 10% into investments, you'll, you'll probably end up with about um, sort of the minimum you need to retire. So that's probably a floor. I think for most people um, where you'd want to be at ideally Um, I'm the kind of person that's just trying to go full noise and, and, you know, get ahead as fast as I can. So um, I've got my foot flat to the floor on that savings rate and I'm closer to probably high fifties or 60 at this point, but um, yeah, uh, different, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> yeah, that's a good saying. <laughs> um, cool. A couple more questions, man. Um, Tom, what, what do you do for uh, hobbies? Uh, yeah. So I guess the, the YouTube channel and investing stuff does take up a, a fair chunk of my time. Now I'm trying to put out sort of three videos a week on YouTube plus a podcast. And I've also actually just started a second YouTube channel with four other guys where we do weekly live streams. So fair, fair bit going on in that department plus a full-time job. Um, but outside of that, I, um, I basically like pick up heavy objects for fun. So I competed in, uh, I competed in powerlifting for four or five years. Um, sort of got into lifting weights, um, sort of just out of high school, was doing a bit at high school for rugby, which I got in way too late and wasn't that good at. I was like third 15 kind of material. So um, decided I was probably better at lifting weights than I was at, um, at rugby. Um, so yeah, sort of carried on doing that. I um, actually got to the chance to compete in Singapore at one point there in my last year in the under 23s division there, which was pretty cool. Um, and I've transitioned a little bit to um, doing some strongman training now. So rather than the squat, bench, press, and deadlift, literally the three events you have in powerlifting, um, doing a whole range of stuff, you know, picking up like big concrete balls, basically, which they call atlas stones and farmer's walks, carrying heavy objects and all that sort of stuff. So that that keeps me busy um, and is a bit of a stress reliever, I suppose, as well, outside everything else. It's probably, uh, you'll be seen be lifting cars, bro. <laughs> Yeah, we'll try. Yeah, try to. <laughs> we, we we do have we do have like car deadlift events and stuff in Strongman, which um, is basically like they back the car onto this um, big frame with like handles out the end. We've done a bit of that before, so that that's good fun. It's a bit of a weird feeling, like um, you know, when you do a regular deadlift with a bar, like all the weights kind of there right away, but with a car. Um, the i guess like you take up some slack with the suspension and stuff and like sort of not all the weight's quite in your hands so you're almost standing up so it's a bit of a different feeling as well yeah it, it, um i've actually watched a few um strongman competitions you know like and i even watch a you know like um your common your common strongman like um brian shaw i don't know if you know who he is but yeah very like he's got a youtube channel as well man yeah some of the stuff he does is crazy and obviously a lot of the others um that compete as well but man wicked wicked physiques man and unreal strength eh yeah, I'm I'm nowhere near that level, but um, <laughs> I, I try hard enough by my standards. I think. Yeah, just uh, even the food that they eat, bro, it's just ridiculous, man. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like I um, that's one of the things that I quite liked about powerlifting. Like in powerlifting, there's a bunch of weight classes, so you, you it's not like mm. strongman where there's 
I mean, in New Zealand strongman, there's like three weight classes or something. But for world strongest man and stuff, there's like under 105 kilos for men or over 105. And if you want to be good at over 105, you've got to be like 180 or 200 kilos or something. But, yeah. um, which is not fun when you also want to be able to like walk upstairs and stuff. So, <laughs> so with, with powerlifting, I was um, most of the time I was competing in the actually 105 kilos was the category I was in for powerlifting as well. So um didn't have to blow up too much, but um, that was sort of a nice way to sit around. Yeah. If I'm um, talking about your powerlifting, like what type yeah. of score would we, we'd, um, you'd be, you know, pushing out, um, you know, with your dead bench and, and your yeah. Um, squat. Yeah. So my, well, my best, I'll give you my best competition lift. So my best yeah. squat, and this is all at 105 kilos body weight as well. Um, so my best squat was 265 kilos. Um, best bench bench wasn't my best lift but my best bench was 157.5 kilos and my best deadlift was 280 kilos how do you how do you kind of train for stuff like that i mean obviously it's a long long training set you know um what's it called uh program that you do yep. and stuff yeah i mean how often were you training and how long yeah i was training sort of four times a week um and some of the sessions were like uh anywhere from like an hour and a half to two hours generally like some of them were pretty long sessions um but yeah i was i guess when i first started out it was more general training so i was doing all sorts of different you know general weight exercises and as you kind of progress you tend to get more specific with doing just the squat and the bench press and the deadlift and a few accessories kind of around the edges you tend to get more focused on that to try and upskill and just get better at the movements and so on as you kind of progress and then I guess within a particular maybe like eight to 12 week training block leading into a competition you sort of basically start out with kind of at a very high level you sort of start out with lighter weights more reps and gradually move towards hitting very very heavy sets of like one or two reps when you're only you know a couple of weeks out from competition kind of thing so that's the general sort of um progression that tends to happen but i was um i was training four times a week but i was doing each of the individual lifts fairly frequently like i was squatting i was generally hitting at least two of those competition lifts in a session so i'd be like squatting twice a week i was benching three times a week actually Mm. and then deadlifting twice a week as well and accessories kind of all in the mix there too so Man, I guess you yeah. got that farmer boy strength, eh, bro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to think so. That only gets you so far. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, hey, and last question, man, just to round things off uh, in regards to yeah. investing, can only smart people invest? Yeah, so that's a good question. Actually, just, I think it was just yesterday, as I'm not sure when this is coming out, but as of recording, um, just, just yesterday, I actually did a video on top five investing myths, and that was number one. Like, you don't have to be a genius to do this stuff. So, um yeah i mean there's a couple of really basic investing strategies that work extremely well so something like etf investing that we've talked about um kind of throughout this um is a really simple way to just instantly diversify across an entire country's stock market for example so if you look at the new zealand stock exchange if you had just consistently dollar cost average like we talked about earlier you know every month or whatever frequency for you if you'd consistently bought into the new zealand stock market there was a study that came out i think around 2015 that looked back at 100 years of new zealand stock market returns and um, the average return that you would have got and again this is compounded with compound interest and you know snowballing like we talked about earlier um, was about 10 percent a year and you could have done that without thinking at all all you do is say i'm going to invest in the new zealand stock market i'm going to do that every month and you would have banked a 
10% a year return, which can turn pretty modest amounts of money into something really significant. So there's really simple strategies out there. I, I guess I'm more in the camp of trying to understand individual businesses really, really well, which um, again, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that Apple's going to make a lot of money next year. Some of these businesses are you know, relatively simple. Um, there's plenty that are super complicated and way over my head, but the great thing about stock market investing is there's thousands of public companies and I can just forget about the ones I don't understand and focus on Domino's pizza or something, which to me is a pretty easy business to get my head around. So um, yeah, you, you don't have to be a genius to do this stuff. It's just um, to a large extent, it's just about being really consistent um, and kind of disciplined with your approach. Yeah, cool. Um, man, just to round things up, man, anything else that you would probably want to touch on or, or I guess say for the listeners? Yeah, uh, I don't know if I have anything else to say. But yeah, no, yeah. I appreciate oh, I appreciate I appreciate you having me on, man. Like the um yeah, I, I love this stuff. So um yeah, I hope that rubbed off at least a little bit on some people. But um yeah, I, I guess the the best bit of advice I could give is to get started yesterday, you know, get started on this stuff as early as you can. The, the longer that you can be investing money for and saving money for the better off you're going to be. Um, so yeah, get started ASAP. Um, you don't have to do anything crazy. Like you don't try and have to, you don't have to try and save 50% of your income for investments tomorrow. It's, you know, take small steps, invest $50 or a hundred dollars. I think you can invest like a dollar or something if you want with sharesies now. So invest small amounts yeah. of money, build up gradually. And um, yeah, hopefully once you start to see some positive results, that'll motivate you to, to try and get into it uh, a little bit more. Cool, bro. Peace.